Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Participating in Decisions About Your Care. Today's program is a part five of a five-part series called Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. And um, this program is a collaborative one between many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of the collaboration and helping to spread the word about the program and your interest in the program today that we have over 410 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. You come from rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants on today's call from um, Austria, Canada, India, Ireland, Norway, Taiwan, and United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well. And um, so it's really, um, actually it is a global call. Many of you are from different countries on the call today. Now today's program is supported by a number of different industry supporters, and they actually have supported this entire series. I want to thank um, AbbVie, a Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, Gilead, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Exalexis, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this, not just today's program, but the entire series. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. Um, and our first speaker is, is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Um, and Dr. Fleischman is uh, former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing selecting a cancer care team and treatment facility, what to do when presented with multi, multiple treatment options, and when and how to seek a second opinion and getting copies of your medical records. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, participate in this call. Um, what, seem, what would seemingly be a simple choice uh, is a little more complicated these days, so we'll try to make it as simple as possible. Um, to understand uh, the best way to get the best cancer treatment for you or your family. Um, there are a number of different uh, settings in which cancer treatment is uh, provided in the United States and, and in, in many other countries. It's pretty similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, many uh, oncologists work out of a, a private office, a single practice, a solo practice, or a practice with other oncologists in the office. Um, and sometimes those are freestanding, and, but more often than not, they're associated with uh, local hospitals in case a patient needs to be admitted to the hospital. They can see the patient in the office and in the hospital, though that's pretty rare these days now that there is a specialty of people, of, of physicians seeing patients in hospitals called hospitalists. 
um, or uh, patients can be seen um, in the office or the clinic, and clinic and office are pretty much synonymous in this case. Um, at a, um, a hospital, that's either a teaching hospital or a non-teaching hospital, or sometimes an all-cancer hospital, of which there are a number in uh, the United States and in various countries around the world. Um, the, these settings often offer a, a variety of services. There is usually um, more coordination between the services, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and um, the real difficult issue here is getting to a facility where uh, your insurance will pay for the services. Um, some insurances allow um, their insured patients to go anywhere and see any doctor, but those are fewer and fewer now, and uh, more of the insurance companies will have a network of people who are um, are signed up with the insurance company and have a negotiated um, fee rates so that the costs are a little more manageable. Um, so the best thing to do is once you know what's in your area, speak with your insurance company. Um, all of us who have insurance have a card on the back who's often a toll-free number. Call that number, uh, speak with someone, explain. Uh, the kind of cancer that either you may have or has been confirmed by your primary care doctor and um, ask about what's in the area. Second um, way to find out would be through your primary care doctor. Your primary care doctor is an excellent source of information because he or she has worked with oncology colleagues in the past and may have a sense. Um, sometimes in your primary care doctor's office, it's not the doctor but the nurse or the office manager who really know the, the people in the area and the offices in the area and can tip you off about what's best. In an ideal situation, the recommendation from your insurance company and the recommendation from your primary care doctor indeed should match, and that's the place um, to go to. But as far as the, um, the difference between a, a private office and a um, hospital-based practice, whether it's a cancer hospital or a general hospital, Keep in mind that uh, many people feel that there's a little more personal attention in the private office, but there are many more services available to someone in the uh, larger cancer programs. Um, beyond that, there are a number of um, a number of public-private um, organizations that actually accredit cancer centers around the country. The American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer accredits about 1,500 programs across the United States. They are just becoming international, but it's not fully developed yet. They also accredit breast, uh, cancers, breast programs and programs in rectal cancer, and there are more coming down the pike. Uh, National Cancer Institute has um, a, n a number of designated centers. Some of them are more patient um, and, and clinical-based. Some have uh, significant research components. Um, and that's important. Um, and the American College of Radiation Oncology also certifies radiation centers. So being in, a, in a, an office or at a practice or in a program at a hospital that have these accreditations tells you a number of things. It tells you that uh, there are a wide variety of services that are available, um, that um, 
the facility or the office or the treatment, the, the, the professionals in the, in the cancer treatment team actually will stop and take a look at how they're doing. They'll look at the data that's collected. There is um, outcome data collected for every state in the United States and for the federal government um, and for the Commission on Cancer. And they'll try to see if there are quality improvements that can be made in their system um, so that they can provide care that is equal to or better to the national benchmarks and national standards. Some private offices do, are not obligated to do that. There are, um, uh, there are quality improvement programs that are also available through the American Society of Clinical Oncology for those private offices. The other thing is that the availability of clinical trials, the availability of research programs that patients can enter is, um, is extremely important, and those are available both locally through the larger centers and nationally, and because of the way that the programs have developed, people um, can often access um, clinical research trials that are available or in their own city or at their own hospital, um, even though they are being run, the trial is being run from a hospital in another city based upon cooperative research networks. It's a really important um, source of getting clinical trials close to home. The uh, thing that really separates the, what, you, what you can get often in a private office from a cancer program is that the cancer programs are obligated to present a certain percentage of patients, of new patients that they see at a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary conference that must include medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, and a pathologist and a radiologist to review all of the uh, information that uh, is known about the patient so far uh, because it, it makes sure that the treatment that people get is really up to date because it used to be that everybody got surgery first and then um, often chemotherapy or radiation therapy after that. But now newer treatments will actually give some chemotherapy or radiation first in certain circumstances or have chemotherapy first and then surgery and radiation afterwards. And by be, have you, having your situation reviewed by this interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary uh, team, they will be able to actually figure out between themselves which modality of treatment is better first for you based upon their experience and the evidence in the literature. So um, that's something that really can't be um, rivaled in a, a solo private practice, but the personal treatment sometimes is, um, is more significant to people than having this, um, this very important service available to them. The other thing people need to keep in mind is that some cancers are so specialized these days that many oncologists will treat only a certain cancer, only breast cancer, only cancers of the gastrointestinal tract, only solid tumors versus a, what we call hematological tumors, leukemia, lymphoma, or multiple myeloma. There are uh, some, in some communities, the oncologists will treat every kind of cancer. That's something else to consider. Um, there are often times when uh, patients get uh, diff differing opinions from different oncologists 
that isn't able that that has not been able to be settled in the multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary conferences, or people want a second opinion. Second opinions in the cancer world are extremely common, um, almost universal, in fact, in, in most parts of the United States. Um, and getting a second opinion is uh, often something you can negotiate through your insurance company if there are limitations. The insurance company will actually may help you find where to get a second opinion, and getting your records together can be um, um, a significant um, obstacle, but you're entitled to them. Each state has different requirements about how and if you have to pay for them and over what period of time. But in general, the records are obtainable, including often the actual pathology slides, not the report from the pathologist. But that's something that um, sometimes needs a good, strong family member or friend to do because it, at times a patient, him or herself, um, doesn't feel up to traveling in the community and, and collecting this information. Some, sometimes all of it is already in a consolidated electronic medical record system if the people that you're seeing, if the physicians that you're seeing are uh, on the same electronic medical record system, which varies from hospital to hospital. So if it seems like even after the specialist meet and there's a difference of opinion, or if you just want to make sure you're on the right track, getting a second opinion is very acceptable in the cancer world, and it's something that um, that uh, is very, very common. So I, I hope this helps simplify a complicated issue. Um, insurance companies and setting and accreditations are really very important when deciding where to go for treatment. Um, for people who don't have insurance, in every county in the United States, there is a um, hospital uh, who will treat patients without insurance, and that's often the place to start if people don't have insurance and cannot qualify for even emer emergency uh, insurance through the Medicaid program in their state. Uh, I'll stop here and turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. What a wonderful um, setting the stage for the program today and really identifying some key issues for people to think about. Um, they're so important, and so thank you. And I'll do questions for you during the Q&A. Uh, thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, Director, Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. Dr. Shapira will be presenting Understanding Treatment Choices, Follow-Up Care, and Survivorship Care Plan. Anticipating, Preventing, and Managing Treatment and Long-Term Side Effects, and Key Questions to Ask Your Healthcare Team. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you, thank you so very much, Dr. Masner, and uh, thank you all for participating today. Um, please forgive me, I have a little cold, so um, I hope I sound um, loud and clear. Uh, so. It, this is a very interesting uh, question and topic that we all have, and uh, it should resonate with each one of us. How are we to make a good, informed, reasonable choice if we don't even understand our options well, is the way I would frame this first topic. So it's, it's important for us to recognize that there are many sources of information these days and that it's important also to recognize that there is some credible, expert-vetted sources of information, and there's also um, pretty quick access to misinformation these days, 
with, with the, so much information available online. So my recommendation would be to seek out those sources of high-quality information, and by that I mean information that comes from experts and is derived from evidence so that what you're reading or hearing online typically matches what an expert would tell you in the consultation room. I have been very involved in trying to bring expert vetted information to patients, and I can certainly recommend the site of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which is cancer.net, as a credible source. It is free of any influence, and it is um, uh, basically a site that provides experiences and evidence that comes straight from those who are considered world experts in their field. But there are other sources of information, and that can be peer-to-peer -peer information. Sometimes it's really helpful to hear the experience of somebody else who's walked in your shoes or who's been diagnosed recently with the same condition. This is particularly helpful for those perhaps diagnosed with a rare cancer um, where there isn't a plethora of information easily available online. So online communities are also emerging as important sources of information. And this is where I would say one has to exercise some caution. Some may be um, very mature and provide very good information, but others may not have an expert curator or may also expose a, a reader to some misinformation. So I think that online communities can be very powerful, but it's really important to um, show just some discernment as to where to go and how much to contribute. Um, I think there are many examples where understanding the full gamut of treatment choices can make a huge difference in the decision-making process. I am, I'm a breast cancer doctor, and I often meet with patients who've been given a lot of options for even surgical treatments, and they wonder how they can choose what's best for them. I would say in those kinds of situations, or even when we're talking about whether or not to receive a certain type of chemotherapy or systemic therapy, whether to participate in a trial as an option for treatment, it's really important to understand what those options are, to think through where those take you, to um, ask for others, perhaps even others who participated who have had those procedures to guide you, and to then take the time to deliberate and involve somebody in your inner circle who has given you advice and knows what matters to you. This is also important as we think about follow-up care. Understanding what that um, landscape of follow-up care looks like is also important. Care coordination has been identified as a problem for many cancer survivors, and I'm thinking about survivors as those diagnosed with cancer, and more typically we also think about those who've completed their active cancer treatment and now are moving you know, on to the rest of their new normal and the rest of their lives. Ideally, follow-up care should involve shared care between the cancer specialist, perhaps other specialists involved in a person's care, because let's remember that um, many people have not only cancer but other chronic conditions like diabetes or heart disease or arthritis. So everybody ideally should have access to the same information, but we know in real life that that often doesn't happen. 
that a primary care doctor may not be exactly in the same system as a cancer specialist or all the cancer specialists, that they may not have access to the same electronic health record. And so that's when people feel that they're either lost or that they don't have a coordinated plan for follow-up care. Ideally, we thought many years ago that perhaps having a plan, these are called survivor care plans, would provide some of the answers and facilitate the continuity of care. So from the patient's perspective, care would not feel as fragmented but more seamless. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen in real life. And after a good uh, 12 years or so of studying survivor care plans, we can't really say that we have evidence that they facilitate follow-up care for the majority of patients. So I think that at the moment you'll find that the community of cancer professionals and primary care doctors are looking for models of care that really answer the call from patients to feel that they're protected, that somebody has their back, and that all of the people involved in their care actually are speaking the same language and propose to have the same plan for testing and surveillance going forward. So I think it's safe to think of the survivor care plan these days as a tool and a process. The process involves communication. The process involves understanding the past history of cancer, the treatment and what those treatments then may um, require in terms of follow-up, in terms of late complications, as well as a customized plan for preventive care. And that may depend a little bit on somebody's age, on their genetic predisposition to cancer, if there is one, on the treatments they have received, and so on. So this still has to be customized. And just to show you that this is an area that's still in flux, um, I want to share with you that uh, this coming Saturday in San Francisco at an international meeting of the uh, Multinational Association of Supportive Care and Cancer, there's actually going to be a debate um, and six international experts of survivor care plans are going to participate and argue both sides. One, that this really is the passport to better health and coordination, and the other is that um, while a great idea, this really has not delivered on the promise. So you will hear more about how to construct these survivor care plans, how to use them, I think, in the very near future. So this brings me to the idea of anticipating, preventing, managing, and planning. There's only so much that we can anticipate in terms of possible side effects of cancer treatments. We, we go into it thinking that hopefully things will work out well, but sometimes there are unforeseen complications. This could be an infection after surgery. This could be an unexpected side effect of chemotherapy or a more severe effect than was in, that was initially thought of. So I think it's important to do as much anticipating and preventing as possible, but even more importantly, to understand what the possible side effects are of treatment, we refer to the, the long-term side effects as those that start when you're actually getting the treatment but may persist for many months or years after. And a classic example of that is neuropathy. It may start while somebody is getting a cancer chemotherapy drug, but it may persist for months or years. Another may be fatigue, which we know persists for up to a year or two after completing cancer treatment. 
So knowing how to manage it is really very important as well. And in order to manage it, what do you need to do? You need to recognize it's happening. You need to try to describe it as accurately as possible. You need to report it to a clinician on the team. And you need to work with those clinicians until you have either resolved the symptom or you understand and have a plan for living with it as well as you possibly can so that it doesn't affect the quality of your life any more than it absolutely needs to. So in concluding, I think when, um, at, when tasked with giving some advice based on my professional experience on key questions to ask the healthcare team, I think the first question is, who's on my team? So what are the resources that are available to you? And my colleague, Dr. Fleischman, just explained that there may be differences in the resources depending on where you get treated. And so it's important to know who, who, is, who is available to you, what are their roles, how do you communicate with them, how can you make your team work for you, how can you expand that team if you identify needs that are not necessarily met or in the scope of practice of those professionals. And then very importantly, I think, is is really to feel that you are known as a person and understood by your team. As a doctor, I've often asked my patients at the end of a consultation, is there something else I need to know, I need to know or I should know about you before we start treatment? And I think that really speaks to the fact that the best relationships and collaborative relationships in clinical cancer care depend also on making sure that everybody feels that they're connected and supported and that you as a patient are able to tell the team and the oncology clinicians you're working with what matters to you and also what works for you in terms of communication style. So with that, I'll turn it right back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. That was really wonderful and a lot of very helpful suggestions and hints for everybody in terms of really um, how to really get get help with their um, with with their kind of getting the best care possible. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn. And Ms. Flynn is nurse educator, research and practice development, National Institutes of Health uh, Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is also a nurse practitioner. And she um, is um, going to be addressing how a cancer diagnosis affects family, partners, and loved ones, coping with the practical, social, and emotional challenges of cancer, and self-care tips. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for including me on today's call. And I would like to take this time to welcome all of our participants on the call. You're taking time out of your busy schedules to focus on yourself or on your loved ones with cancer, and I thank you for joining us. And so first I'm going to talk about how the cancer diagnosis affects our families, our partners, and our loved ones. Hearing three words, you have cancer, changes your life forever. Whether you're a person with a cancer diagnosis or you're a caregiver for someone with cancer, this is a very challenging time. It may feel like you've been picked up and dropped off in a foreign land, surrounded by teams of medical providers you've never met before, different medical tests, and different treatment options. In fact, even the names of the treatment options may seem like they're written in a foreign language. Names like cyclophosphamide, rituximab, cisplatinum, 
to me, they all sound like names on Star Trek movies and not the names of life-saving chemotherapy and immunotherapy medications. And I want to tell you that it's completely normal to feel overwhelmed in this new foreign land, the cancer land that you found yourselves in. You may feel anxious, worried, angry, and afraid. I want you to give yourself permission to recognize these emotions, to label them, and to feel them. And these emotions will be different for every person. And it may differ, um, people with cancer, um, their emotions versus people that are supporting them. Some people may feel these emotions deeper or stronger than others, and that's completely normal. Your partner, family, and friends will be affected by your cancer diagnosis. And as a result, some of these relationships will grow stronger, and some may worsen um, existing issues. It's important to keep those lines of communication open and discuss your issues in an honest and sincere way. By talking about your feelings, you can help reduce your own frustrations, any misunderstandings, feelings of isolation and loneliness. Many people find support groups and the assistance of a social worker or counselor very helpful during this time. And for the parents listening to this presentation, it's normal to want to protect your children from hearing about your cancer diagnosis. Children, no matter the age except for infants, can sense when something is wrong. Maybe they feel the tension in the household, or, or they overhear part of a phone conversation, or maybe they read an email describing your diagnosis. I would recommend that you talk to your children about your diagnosis in an age-appropriate manner. This will help reduce their confusion and fear and help them understand why you might need to spend a week in a hospital or why their schedule has been disrupted and they need to go to a carpool or stay at a grandparent's house for a night. At the end of, this, of my presentation, Dr. Messner will talk about the programs and services offered by Cancer Care. But cancer can also change family roles. A person who has always been in charge may be serving as a caregiver and may have trouble accepting the more dependent role. Or the person who has not served as the head of the household may be struggling to now be in charge of the household. Your partner may try to gain control by your cancer diagnosis by becoming an expert in an area of the disease. I encourage you to talk to your partner about your feelings and work together as much as possible to make the decisions about your treatment, about caregiving, and about other issues. In most relationships, um, the chores um, are handed off or split between partners. One might do yard work and one might do the laundry. Um, that's how it is in my household. Um, and if you have cancer, it may leave you fatigued and unable to perform um, these duties. So talk to your partner and see if splitting them uh, a different way might be helpful. As um, uh, your physical needs might change with your cancer treatments throughout its course, it's important to talk to your partner about your needs. They may not notice that, you, that you're needing more help, so it's important to ask. And for all of our partners out there, it's important to be observant and see if the person with cancer is struggling to maybe wash their hair or dry it. Um, by 
keeping communication open. It will reduce the frustration and anger and hopefully um, result in misinterpreting uh, behavior. There's lots of emotional needs, too, that might change um, during the course of the cancer treatment. Both partners might need extra reassurance that they are still loved, and couples need to be sensitive to changing emotional needs that come with a cancer diagnosis. Consider talking to a professional, such as someone on your um, team, such as a therapist or counselor, and express your feelings, um, whether you're feeling hurt, overwhelmed, or something else. It's important to express that to your partner. And sometimes cancer can change our hopes and dreams of, of the future. Your plans of maybe retiring or traveling um, may have to be put on hold, and that may cause you to feel sad or angry. Um, it helps to reevaluate the priorities and work together with your partner and with your family to establish new short-term goals, such as maybe finishing the cancer treatment. Things that may have seemed important before your cancer treatment now may give way to new priorities, such as spending more time together. By putting some of the goals on hold rather than changing them or eliminating them completely may help your outlook on the future. And as I talked earlier about being diagnosed with cancer is a life-changing event and maybe you feel like you've been dropped off in a foreign land, um, it is stressful. And I have a couple of tips, some practical, social, and emotional tips um, to help on your journey with cancer. The first one is to have a second person or second set of ears at your medical appointments. There's a lot of information communicated during these medical appointments, and it's very difficult for one person to absorb all of this information. By having a second person present, they can take notes um, and capture the essence of that appointment. They can help you clarify questions that you might have that might, maybe you're afraid to bring up um, because they may make you feel uncomfortable. They can help you with uh, defining expectations of that appointment. Um, before you leave your medical appointment, do you have all the information that you need to make a treatment decision? Our earlier speakers talked about some of those important questions to ask during that appointment. Um, and when I don't understand something, um, sometimes I need encouragement to keep asking questions. Um, I've even asked physicians to draw a picture um, or use a medical model to explain how the treatment is going to work or where that cancer um, has originated from. As Dr. Shapira uh, talked about, there are lots of websites out there. Most of them are reputable, but some of them are not. And so as she mentioned, um, cancer.net is an excellent, trustworthy website. Also, the National Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society, and your hospital's website. Talk to your medical team. Ask them what resources they use um, when they have questions and what they recommend for their patients. My next tip is putting one person in charge of providing medical updates. Receiving ca cancer treatments um, is not only physically but emotionally exhausting. Find a trusted family member or friend who can provide those updates to your social network, to your support network. Um, they can be uh, the conduit to if uh, one of your friends has a question, um, they, they might be able to provide the answer to that if you've provided them information. They can update um, people by email or text or phone calls. 
And it's important um, to have a person who can delegate tasks to other family members versus relying on you or your caregiver to do everything. And that leads me to my next tip, is to let people help you. Um, Here in America, we often take pride in doing things ourselves and sometimes see asking for help as a sign of a weakness. And I'm here to tell you that, that that's a myth. Everyone in the entire world needs help. And sometimes we require more help at certain times than other times. Now is a time to ask and accept help. Start by making a list of tasks that you could delegate to friends and family. Some of the items on your list might be walking your dog, picking up groceries, mowing the lawn, um, and don't forget the fun things such as uh, uh, going out to a movie um, or maybe um, having someone take you out for a drive. There are many websites that can help you organize these tasks um, and uh, uh, look into those. The next is taking the lead in conversations. Um, you, the person with cancer, um, are becoming comfortable with your with your and accepting your cancer diagnosis. But sometimes friends and family members might avoid talking to you because they don't know what to say to you. They're not sure if they should mention your cancer diagnosis or if they should talk about everything but cancer. And so here's a way that you could take the lead in the conversation and let them know. Um, if you would like to talk about your cancer diagnosis um, or if you'd prefer not to. Um, reassure them that you don't expect them to have the answers, that you are um, want them to listen and help understand your feelings. And um, it's a great time to let them know, you know, I don't feel like talking about my cancer diagnosis now, but let's talk about the latest sporting event or news headline. And my next uh, tip is to stay involved with your social activities. Cancer can be um, a lonely diagnosis, and the more support that you can rally behind you, um, the better our patients have done. Stay active with your social contacts, and that might be um, groups that you have joined, such as a church um, or groups such as the Lions Club or the Moose Club um, or um, other contacts that you have with your friends and family. Encourage them to keep inviting you to parties and gatherings. Um, And if you have physical limitations that prevent you from attending the parties or gatherings, suggest other activities to get together with them, maybe playing cards or watching a movie. And next, I want to talk about some self-care tips. Relaxation exercises can help ease the stress of cancer by helping to calm your mind and maintain inner peace. They can be used while waiting for your next medical appointment or test or even waiting in line in uh, the grocery store or for your prescription. The first one um, are breathing exercises. Um, They help us take big, deep breaths. When we're anxious or worried, we don't often notice that we're taking shallow breaths. And those shallow breathing um, is not allowing enough oxygen to enter our bodies and help relax us. In fact, it may make us even more anxious. And so deep breathing can make us feel calmer and rejuvenated. Um, In just a few moments, we're going to do an exercise together. The next relaxation exercise that I recommend um, is meditation. Repetitive prayer or mantra, um, they're all forms of meditation. 
You can pick, uh, pick a particular prayer or part of a prayer or maybe even a personal mantra such as the word hope and slowly repeat it over and over, each time allowing your mind to focus on the meaning it holds for you and blocking out your worries and everything else. The next tip is guided imagery, which combines meditation and deep breathing. Um, as a practice of deep breathing, um, as you're taking those deep breaths, imagine a peaceful scene or setting or maybe a happy memory. Once you've relaxed, you can create kind of a wakeful dream in which you're envisioning your pain is being washed away or maybe your body is becoming stronger and stronger from your treatment. Your local libraries um, often have guided imagery um, CDs or uh, you can download different apps um, that have great guided imagery um, programs. And next, uh, combining breathing along with muscle tensing. And this is where you're in a comfortable position where you can relax and close your eyes and clear your mind of distractions. You'll take some deep, slow breaths, and as you're able to, concentrate on your breathing um, and have your breathing from your belly um, rather than from your chest. And with the muscle tensing, you start at the top of your head in your jaw and neck area, and you tense your muscles for maybe a couple seconds, and then you relax them. And then you move on to your shoulders, where you tense them for a few seconds and then relax them. And then you move on to your chest, tensing and relaxing, then your abdomen, your pelvic area, your thighs, your, your lower legs, and then your feet. After each muscle tension, notice how relaxing your muscles feel afterwards. And so I'm going to wrap up my presentation by doing a breathing exercise. And this is found from the Cancer Care Fact Sheet on Relaxation Techniques. It can be done anytime and anywhere. And so what you're going to do is first get into a comfortable position, and that might be laying down, that might be sitting up, something supporting your back. And I want you to take a deep breath in. Take your deep breath in through your diaphragm, or through your, ch and then you're going to hold it for a couple seconds, or however long is comfortable for you. And then you're going to slowly exhale. And as you're exhaling, have a smile on your face. And so we're going to do that two more times. So I'm going to have you take a deep breath in, and we're going to inhale, and then we're going to hold for as long as you're able to, and then you're going to exhale with a smile on your face. And we're going to do that one more time. We're going to inhale deeply, and we're going to hold it, and then we're going to exhale with a smile on our face. And now I want you to take a moment and let yourself feel the experience of being calm. And then with this last thought, um, I'm going to conclude my presentation for today. Thank you very much for welcoming me into your homes, and I will turn the presentation back over to you, Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Anissa. That was really wonderful, and and that relaxation exercise and the entire presentation was really very helpful to everybody. Um, and we are going to take questions, so um, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. 
But while I'm doing that, please think of the questions you'd like to have asked, because we certainly have the best faculty to ask questions, our best speakers and experts here. So Cancer Care is a national um, organization, and we provide um, all types of help to people. We have a staff of oncology social workers, and we provide both, they're all master's level trained, and we provide both uh, um, both practical and financial assistance. We also provide uh, you know, all kinds of opportunities to talk to our social workers about any concerns you may have. And we also offer both telephone and online support groups. And many people find those groups very helpful because it's often difficult for some people to travel to their institution, um, to the hospital, um, to join a group. And uh, somehow doing it on the telephone or doing it online, it makes it much more accessible for people. And, um, and there's no need to travel. Or, um, and even people in urban areas who don't have to travel, perhaps, will still have to travel to get somewhere. They just, it's like the, the comfort of it. The online support groups do not really occur in real time so that you can post any time you want. Those group members can post. And for the telephone groups, they do happen at a particular time. Um, much like these workshops, is a specific time that they occur. So some people choose them based on whether that time works for them or may choose an online group because it's more convenient for them in terms of not having to be locked, to locked into a particular time. We also offer these workshops. We offer quite a few of these type of workshops so that you can get information um, to help you to better understand and um, to cope with, your, uh, with cancer. And we also um, uh, hope that you will take that information back, of course, to your treating healthcare teams. And um, we also have a number of publications and fact sheets and, of course, our website. Um, to access services from Cancer Care, you simply call 800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Now, with that being said, we now have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, that Sonia bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to see if we can take your questions, um, as many as possible. And at the end of the call, if we don't get to all your questions, I will let you know how you can get your questions answered. And so we'll say a little bit about that at the end. So Sonia is going to bring all of our speakers on board, and she'll explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to be or wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Amelia S. Your line is now open. Okay. Hi, it's Emil S. Um, question, will electronic medical records from different hospital systems ever be coordinated so that one doctor from one system will be able to access personal medical records from another electronic medical record system? That's a great question, Emil. Thank you. Um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to start with that one? Great question, and um, probably none of us are satisfied with the outcome here. Um, it was first um, it was first thought that all of the systems would actually have a common platform and speak to each other, but what has developed is that a number of very large companies have their own platform that is uh, either trademarked or copyrighted, I'm not sure what the exact, exact terminology is, but they own their platform. And uh, although they're all similar, they're not exactly the same. And because these are private enterprises, um, there's very little interest in having them speak to each other now. That may change in the future. Uh, we're hopeful that it will, um, but at this point, they don't. Okay. Um so um, I hope that helps. Um, anyone else want to add to that? 
uh, Dr. Shapira or or Ms. Flynn? Sure. So um, I absolutely um, agree, and I think that you have the question addresses one of the very important limitations that prevents better collaboration and coordination of care. So we would love for there to be interoperability and access to the records to all of the clinicians who are involved in a person's care, but unfortunately, that is the exception and not the rule, unless you get all of your care within one system. And that is sometimes what, what helps people select where they're going to get care, and they create a team that includes different specialists and primary care physicians who are all working within the same system and share records. Excellent. Thank you. That's a, that's a suggestion. That's excellent. And uh, Ms. Flynn, do you have anything you'd like to add as well? I have nothing to add. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. And our next question, uh, Sonia? Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much. It's an excellent seminar, Ms. Carolyn Mester. Thank you, Dr. Mester. I have two questions. Uh, back in December 2006, I had a breast cancer, and I did not know what to do. I had uh, either do a second lumpectomy. After the surgery, I was told I had a second lumpectomy because I had multivocal disease, and he did not reach negative margins, the surgeon. And then he said, you may have to have a third if I can't get everything out with the multifocal. It was a very difficult decision not knowing if I was going to have another lumpectomy with radiation or have a mastectomy and reconstruction. So I did go to three opinions. My question with this is how to make the decision because I didn't know as a nurse myself and social worker, I wasn't sure what was the right decision because it's all opinions. And secondly, as a nurse and social worker, I had difficulty separating myself as a professional or as a patient because I got into conflict with everyone about what is the right things to do. In the, in the decisions of my care. Thank you so much. Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, actually, thank you, Stephanie. Um, Dr. Shapiro, do you want to uh, uh, start with addressing that question, the questions? So first of all, that sounds so hard. I don't think I can give you a pat answer. Uh, sounds like you are both, you have more knowledge than most because you're a healthcare professional Two, you really were presented with various choices, and those seem to have been affirmed through a process of consulting various experts. So you did everything right, and in the end, it might just have, you know, you might have resorted to some intuition in addition to all of the information, and that may have, that intuition hopefully led you to a decision that you don't regret. But um, there's the only lesson I think that we can take from your story that could be applicable to others is that sometimes things aren't very straightforward and you have to understand what the options are and then at the end you have to choose and you have to you have to make a decision and hope that that's the right one. Thank you. That's very helpful. I hope that's helpful to you, Stephanie and um, Dr. Fleischman. Do you want to add anything? Well, at sometimes uh, a primary care doctor can help sort things out. Often they will know you for a longer period of time and be able to help inject you know, the kind of person you are and what you're most comfortable with based upon things that have happened in treatment with you all over the, all over the previous years before the cancer. 
So sometimes uh, that's a, a good way to figure out what's the best way to proceed. Awesome. And Ms. Flynn, do you want to add anything as well? Sure. I just want to say to Stephanie, we, we all struggle as healthcare providers um, that enter the healthcare system. And um, just to echo what Dr. Shapira said, that you made the best decision for yourself given the information that you had um, at the time. And so, um, you know, that's all we can ask of any of us uh, to do. So thank you for your call. And thank you. And thanks. That's an excellent point. And it is rather humbling. It's true that one does the best you can. That's such a, a thing for everyone to take away. That each person gathers information and then ultimately makes a decision. And, and I think... Um, as Dr. Shreer said, hopefully it's a decision that you are comfortable with, and if not, you can discuss it with your healthcare team, with others, um, so that um, that you can feel you can kind of move on. It's sometimes not so easy to move on from these decisions that we make either. So um, thank you. Excellent. Um, these excellent, uh, excellent. Our questions are really quite good. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so... Um, so do you have any tips on how to choose an oncologist for a second opinion from my lymphoma? What questions should I ask the doctor? So um, so this could be actually for lymphoma. It could be for any type of cancer. But um, So any t- tips on how to choose an oncologist for a second opinion um, and, um, and what to ask? Um, Dr. Fleischman, would you like to start with that one? Sure. Uh, there are um, uh, patient advocate groups such as the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the Myeloma Foundation. Uh, I, I couldn't possibly say all of them off the top of my head, but the, that is often a place to try to find trusted experts in the field. Second thing is for you or someone in your treatment team to look at their biographies, which are almost always online, and see who has a track record in either running a specialty program in the particular kind of cancer you have or is a part of a collaborative research group, often one of the National Cancer Institute clinical cooperative groups where they both uh, run clinical trials and give academic input. And that would show, um, uh, and publications that come out of that. And that would show that somebody has not only an interest, but an expertise in the area. Um, often speaking with the oncologist you first saw about who they would suggest for a second opinion would be uh, a good way because uh, many of the professionals know each other through uh, different academic uh, societies and uh, they're the ones who, who often can tell you whose opinion they value. Um, and the, again, the fourth is an insurance, your insurance company, because insurance companies often designate um, specialty groups um, to uh, both get treatment and second opinions. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Shapiro, do you want to add to that? Sure. I think Dr. Fleischman covered absolutely everything that's important from a rational perspective. I would just add two things, that I've been the first and the second and the third opinion for different patients, and I think sometimes the nature of the conversations is very different if you're rendering the first opinion or if you are being seen as a consultant. And a lot depends on what questions you want answered. 
If you are looking for novel treatments, then by all means go to somebody who's actively involved in cutting-edge research. If you're looking for a view from sort of 30,000 feet to give you an idea of what's best, but without necessarily wanting to change where you're going to get treatment, you may choose somebody for their ability to have a good consultation. So a lot, the satisfaction with a second opinion often depends on what you're looking for from that second or third opinion. Thank you. Thanks. And Ms. Flynn, do you want to add as well? Uh, sure. Um, just to echo um, that the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and the National Cancer Institute each have brochures um, about what questions you should ask your oncologist um, about treatments um, and treatment options. And so I would just um, offer those as um, just guides to help you um, as you're trying to um, figure out where to get your second opinion and which questions to ask. Thank you for bringing that up. That, and we I just remind everyone you will get an evaluation um, probably tomorrow after today's program. And in that evaluation, it's not just an evaluation. We also will include all the resources that we mentioned. And so um, these booklets will be mentioned as well and any of the resources we've mentioned throughout the program. So I know that you've all been trying to take it down. And But um, also you should also know that these programs are recorded, and that means that they are available to listen to again, but just to streamline your access to just resources that we mentioned during the program or resources that we may have given you up front but want to repeat again, you'll get that when you get the evaluation. So be sure to look for that um, information as well um, and with the phone numbers and websites and all that information. Um, and um, so another question. Um, so this was an interesting question. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Fleischman if you would start with this. When deciding between multiple treatment options, is it appropriate to bring up cost with my doctor? Well, what a good question. Yes. <laughs> um, costs are extremely important. Uh, there are a number, a number of people in the oncology world that are trying to balance the value of care, meaning the, the outcome versus the cost to help people come up with their own decision based upon facts. If a, a treatment costs X amount of money and has an overall survival rate of X number of months or years, um, what are the potential side effects that can happen? It, it's sort of like a, a very important juggling act because you really don't want to drop any of the balls, but each one is important. So outcome and cost uh, go hand in hand more and more these days, and, and there are, are people who are actually interested in this and can often help balance that out. The oncology literature is becoming more full uh, every year with um, research groups that are looking at costs and outcomes rather than just outcomes alone. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Schreer, do you want to add to that as well? It's excellent. This is a really important question. I think it's a fabulous question and a great answer. And uh, absolutely, cost does matter because even the copays on some of the newer, enormously expensive drugs can break the family budget. So I think that it is important. Sometimes cost doesn't matter, but in many situations, it is a driver of decisions. Awesome. Thank you. And um, Ms. Flynn, also. 
Yes, and I would just like to, to echo um, what Dr. Fleshman and Dr. Shapira have said. Um, absolutely ask. And then also ask your hospital or um, your physician group, um, do they have any resources to help cover some of this um, beyond insurance? Um, is there is there funding in other ways that could help um, help manage that? What techniques have other patients used um, if they're facing a large bill? Um, I always find helpful. It's true, and that's an excellent point. And um, to bring in that whole multidisciplinary team. So if you mention it to your physician or your treating team, there may be members of the team who may be called patient navigators, oncology nurses, nurse practitioners, oncology social workers, financial helpers that may be able to help to get also resources for you in the nonprofit world. There are many organizations that, of course, also have um, either copay foundations or they have um, – they offer, they give some financial assistance with different, um, for different um, types of treatment and cancers, and so it's really important. Increasingly, there's more and more like that um, in, in the systems there. So definitely um, do, do take advantage of that as well. Well, I have to say, I know this call could go on a bit longer, but we really, I had said this call would be an hour, so we are going um, to, this will be, that was our last question. But I know that there are still questions in queue, and I also know that if you've asked a question, you might have a second part to the question, or you might actually, um, you might still, you know, have some thoughts about your question. So we do, first of all, um, I don't want to ever um, not acknowledge your healthcare team. So please, any question you asked today and got an answer to or didn't get to ask or, or thought about during the call, um, please go back to treating healthcare team because if, if nothing else, this program gives you permission to ask questions of your healthcare team. That's really important. Here we have the healthcare team here, and we're all saying absolutely the good questions. So you obviously have very good questions to ask. Um, but I know many of you like to do some independent research sometimes uh, on your own. We like you to go to credible resources, credible sites. So I do want to, of course, give a call out to the National Cancer Institute. That's a wonderful resource. We've mentioned it during the program. Um, they have an 800 number, 800-422-6237. Again, you'll be getting that, of course, with your evaluation. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov. And that has a live chat feature, so that's really nice for people both in the U.S. and internationally where you can post your question and they'll kind of attempt to go through their entire database and their information specialist will get you answers to those questions. That's a wonderful resource for all of you. Um, in addition, um, again, depending on what your question is and your concerns, there are so many um, organizations out there. Um, the American Cancer Society, um, we mentioned the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society during the program today, um, American Society of Clinical Oncology, so we'll be listing those. You'll be getting a whole listing of those organizations with their websites and their um, phone numbers, and you'll be able to call them as well. Um, um, and for those of you who'd like to pursue further help from Cancer Care, you also can pursue and contact our staff here. Again, when you call one of us, um, we all actually do have a significant, uh, if we can't help you, we're able to get you resources in another uh, spot, as can your healthcare team. So remember that there are a lot of people out there who've spent their entire careers um, getting a whole set of organizations to help you. That's one thing you should be aware of. So I know that often many of you may feel alone in coping with cancer, 
and that is a very normal feeling to have, but the, the reality, and you may feel that way, but the reality is that when you're feeling that way, just know that there's a group of people out there, a whole network of people out there that can really help you, and um, it's just simply a phone call or a mouth click away, no matter where you are in the world. Um, and um, so I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to thank our speakers. They've been really extraordinary. I want to thank all of you who've asked questions and those of you who've been listening as well. And um, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and um, I look forward to being on other programs. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.